When this meeting is over, the students will be ready to fly. They're going to leave, and, and they'll be gone. They're going to be gone for the next couple weeks. So we will not be having meetings until January the 6th. January the 6th. They'll be back in town, and we will start once again in the book of Isaiah. So, again, we just trust that you will have a good break, a good time this uh, this uh, Christmas holiday. But uh, we will not be here until January the 6th. All right, we got that. Okay, well, let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you for your word, a word which is settled and established, a word so that we can know you and understand you. And we come again tonight as we think about your word and ask for the ministry of the Spirit of God in each one of our hearts that we might understand what we need to concerning who you are so that tonight we might see the Lord high and lifted up. We might understand your way. We might understand your goodness and kindness, and we look to you for that. So guide us and direct us as we think through things tonight, and we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the last part of the book of Isaiah, those last 27 chapters are divided into three sections, three nine-chapter chapter sections. They're punctuated by a phrase. The end of chapter 48, it finishes with this thought, There is no peace for the wicked, says Jehovah. At the end of chapter 57, the second nine-chapter section, it says this, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Same basic phrase in both places. Those particular statements divide off the sections, and they are genuinely different. That's all one poem, and it's all describing one great action of God in saving mankind. That's why we say at the top that it's a messianic poem, but there are distinct sections. Now, before we begin to move, we're going to move tonight into the second section. All fall, we've been thinking about that first important section. We're going to move into the second tonight. But as we do that, I want to think about this section with respect to the people who first heard this message. If you were here at the very beginning, we discussed this, that the book is interesting because it's it. It has an application to the people Isaiah actually spoke to. It has a bigger application, in a sense, to a group of people 150 years later. It has another application with regards to the people who actually saw the Lord. The book of Isaiah becomes very important as they discuss the gospel, and then it becomes, of course, important to us. Now, we've spent most of our time thinking about what this meant to the people who were coming, who were coming out of the captivity. Tonight I want to think for just a moment about the people who would have first heard this message because it has an important uh, application to them also. Isaiah was a preacher for a, a prophet for a very long time, at least 50 plus years. We know that he, had, he was a prophet when um, Uzziah died. That's when it starts. It's his vision In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. We don't know whether that's the initial call of Isaiah or whether it's uh, a second call that he has in, in the ministry, but he starts then at least. Then he, we know that he's still prophet when Hezekiah died, and that's a 50 year span between Uzziah's death 
and Hezekiah's death. Now, if he was 20 when, if he was a young man, 20 years old, say, when when Uzziah died, then he's 70 years old here, and he's going to keep on preaching. So it's a long ministry over a number of kings. But to get the idea of what's happening in, when he speaks this particular message, we have to think about the last two of those kings that he ministered under, or two. First of them is Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the best kings that the people in the Old Testament ever had. He holds a very high place in the Scripture, in their commendation of his work. He had a, a father that didn't love the Lord. And he submitted to God and tried to take the nation forward and had, again, at one point, a a remembrance of the Passover, which is the most elaborate, most dynamic remembrance that was held that we have any record of in the Old Testament. But he not only was out for ceremony, he was out to trust God, and he did trust God. And because he trusted God, he saw great deliverances. We're not going to go into those tonight. Again, I think we might be familiar with it, but he saw God move, and particularly when Assyria was about to consume him, he says, Lord, I'm, I'm trusting you, and God delivered the nation. Now, that was about five years before an event where Hezekiah became very, very sick. All right? In fact, he thought he was going to die. Everybody thought he was going to die. And at that point in his life, it's almost certain, it doesn't say in the Scripture this when it takes place, but to fit it all together, it, it seems it's at that point that his 12-year-old son Manasseh was anointed to be the king. Just in case he dies, there will be continuity in this whole thing. He did not die. He did not die. He lived on for another 15 years, and for 15 years, Hezekiah and Manasseh were both king together. Hezekiah would have had most control, but he still is, once you put him on the throne, you can't take him back off, so he's on the throne. They were, they were there together. When Hezekiah died, Manasseh becomes king. Hezekiah had submitted to God, and God not only said he would bless them during this time, he would not only give uh, Hezekiah these 15 years extra, but he also said this, that during that time I'm going to bless the nation, and he did. He greatly blessed them because of Hezekiah's faithfulness. You see, you reap what you sow. And he had sown to righteousness, and the whole nation was blessed as that came to fruitfulness. Strange thing happened when his son became king. And it makes more sense that he wasn't 12 years old if you read the story, because immediately upon his ascension to the throne, he began to undo everything that Hezekiah had done to benefit that nation. Everything that he tore down, Everything that Hezekiah had torn down of idols and high places. Manasseh went in and rebuilt. Hezekiah had done a great work to remake the temple so that it would be a holy habitation. Manasseh went in and put idols in the main courts of the, of the temple. He had, Hezekiah had driven out all the spiritists and all the people and all the false prophets. He had driven them out of the nation. Manasseh brought them back. And Manasseh not only brought them back, but he practiced witchcraft himself. And not only practiced witchcraft, but it ends up that Manasseh sacrificed his own children to God's. 
I mean, it's a big reversal that took place. Now, think about the people who are in Israel at that particular time. There has been a a movement before with Hezekiah that has drawn them in. And Again, a, a nation has trouble, but everybody in the nation is not in exactly the same condition. No group is ever of one condition. When it says in the Old Testament that the people of Israel all sin, well, again, it doesn't mean that every person in the entire place is going that direction. Now, between the time of God's great deliverance and the time when Manasseh became king, there are 20 years, long enough for people to forget what God has done back here. Long enough for the fire that Hezekiah had started there to cool. Or Hezekiah himself was getting older and not able to influence as he did. When Manasseh steps in here, in mass the nation seems to follow, but there would have been a remnant, a group of people whose hearts would have really ached over what was taking place. Imagine being put suddenly in a place when you have served the Lord and you've been happy with what Hezekiah has done. You have seen the blessing of God and you watch a man make it illegal to go your route. You suddenly become an uh, an outlaw in your own country because of your faithfulness to the God, which is the God of that nation. It is at that point in time, we believe, that Isaiah stepped forward to give this message. And it makes sense that the message that we're reading was given, first of all, to the faithful people in the nation of Judah, who still wanted to serve God while they watched this deluge come in. As they watched it, a problem comes up in our thinking with regards to sin and its effects. It's described in the Word of God as sowing and reaping. It goes both directions. We said that when Hezekiah sowed to righteousness back here, the whole nation benefited for years and years and years. Now Manasseh begins going the other direction. But there's a strange thing about this. It's one that I just would warn everybody about. When you sow to unrighteousness, you will reap what you sow, but you don't reap it when you sow it. It's one of those those terrible things. You know, when you plant a corn seed, you don't have to back up so you don't get hit in the face with the corn coming up. It doesn't go that fast. You put it in and you wait and you see a little, it's hard to believe as you're watching it come up that that thing is actually going to be of any size. But it does grow. It grows in time and it inevitably grows. When you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap from the flesh corruption. Manasseh begins to bring in all these idolatrous things, but it's so the people can go, they would be free to sin. <laughs> And when you set people free to sin, they kind of enjoy that because there is pleasure in sin for a season. There is something thrilling about sin up to a point until what? Until the harvest starts coming in. Important to note was that seldom spoken about, but Manasseh's reign was the longest reign of all the kings of Judah. It was also the bloodiest reign of all the kings of Judah. Not... Uh, not bloody in the sense that they had invasions from the outside 
it was the the violence that took place on the inside from a people who have deserted their God. Now, that's what's going to happen in the future. Now, the people who knew their God would have seen this coming. They know this is a mistake. Imagine what that would mean in our own hearts as we're looking at it. And God comes to speak to them. Now, again, he's going to speak to others later on, but he's going to use this to, to go way out here. But remember, as as Isaiah is giving this message, he's giving it to a group of people, and he does not know the future. He hears about Babylon, but we don't know how much he understood of what he was saying about Babylon. He doesn't know Cyrus personally. That's 150 years away. He is giving a message. How he gets it, we don't know how the prophets received it. But when he gets up to speak, he is addressing a group of people, and they have to be receiving that message. So as we think through this, as we look at what's said here, I think it's helpful to look at it from that perspective. Now, this is a survey part. And I would encourage you during these three weeks to read through. I think it is the most thrilling part of the entire section of the Messianic poem. Let me tell you why. All right, let's look at the two sections that we've gone over. Let's look at the difference between them. All right, the, the chapters we t- considered this fall have a theme to them. The theme is this, the greatness of God the greatness of the living God as opposed to the stupidity of a, a human-made idol. The emptiness of idolatry and the stupidity of making an idol. Now, you could see, again, or just back up here, that um, this would not sit well with Manasseh. Because Manasseh, in order to have idols in Judah, is going to have to make them. He is going to be the force behind the recreating of the idols that Hezekiah smashed, destroyed, did away with. So as Hezekiah, or as Isaiah, excuse me, gets up to preach this message that there is a true God and a person who makes an idol is a fool, again, we read through all that, this would not have sat well with Manasseh. It wasn't very long after Manasseh became king, as best we know. It's it's a little mixed up in the... uh, It's not from the Word of God. We don't have that record in the Word of God. But the the traditions are a little bit difficult to follow. But it wasn't very long before he had Isaiah put to death. But the whole thing is about the greatness of our God. That's why there's tremendous um, worship passages. You want places to help you worship? Go to those first chapters. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. You can go on for a long time in worship over the greatness of our God, as he's described there. The point in is that there is a promised deliverance. Now, how would this affect the people who are listening to it at the time? Imagine that, the encouragement, comfort my people. Here's what to comfort them with. No matter how bad it gets, God's still in control. He's the God is raising up kings. He's God is putting down kings. That may be uncomfortable to them. It may be uncomfortable that Manasseh is king, but Manasseh is king at God's purpose. And he's still in control, and everything he's doing, as we saw at the beginning, as that purpose that God has is still being worked out. It's important for us tonight, no matter how crazy the world is becoming, God's still in control. He doesn't have to work on poll numbers. It doesn't matter what his approval rating is. He is still God. And we don't have to worry about what people think of him. It isn't important in one sense. important for them, but it doesn't change the picture. second thing he does here is he 
in that first section, there is the promise that God is going to do something. I will deliver. I will pour water on him that's thirsty. He goes over and over on this. Why would that be important? Because they are watching. They are in a place where they're trying to serve God, and it doesn't seem to have any effect. Now, you know as well as I do the way people are who are ready to go their own direction. You're seeing it in our own country right now. But those who really want to follow God are not just persecuted, but mocked. They are despised. They are looked down upon. There is something about the arrogance of sin that puts men who really want to serve God in a very bad light to them. That's where these people would have been. And they have no power. They have no power in their own godliness to change that course. That's important in the book of Isaiah. But God says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to deliver. Now, there is a key verse. Again, we don't want to spend too long on this because we've been over before. But I want to read the key verse again that that kind of sums up what the application of all that should be. And that is in Isaiah chapter 45 or 46, excuse me. 15, that is not, that's Matthew, that won't work, that will not work at all, all right, okay, it says this, look unto me, turn to me, chapter 45, verse 22, turn to me, turn to me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, and this is the point of the whole first section, for I am God, and there is no other. Well, God wants us to know, I am God, and there is no other. That's why he took all that time, we saw, to do different things, to predict what was going to happen so that we would know that you and I, people who are listening to this message, would know that nobody made it up, that God himself gave it, and that there is no one else besides that. That was the key verse in the first part. When we get to the second section, the whole thing changes. The whole emphasis changes. Now, that's not to say that he doesn't speak any more about idolatry in the book. He will, but it takes a very back seat to what he's going to go to next. In the middle section, instead of talking about the greatness of God, he talks about the, the, the emphasis turns to a person. And this person is called the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. And we'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment to think about who that servant is. But see, it's... But that servant is God himself. See, in the first, it's the greatness of God. Here it is the servant God. And we're gonna, we'll, we'll think about that in just a moment. And at this particular point, instead of just promising, he describes what it takes to actually bring deliverance to human beings. What will it take? What will it take? Because in a sense, we, we, we like that first part. We want God to act in power, but it's not going to take an act of power. It's going to take an act of sacrifice, an act of humility to make it possible for me to actually experience deliverance. We'll see that in just a moment. We'll go over that the idea of the servant. Then there is the third part of that. What is the key verse there? And again, it, it just said, well, how should it be applied? Well, in chapter 57... At the very end of the section, in verse 15, we have this statement. It says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. 
I dwell on a high and holy place. With him also who is of contrite and lowly of who is contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite one. That's where he's going with this one. Just like in the first section, he's, he's saying all this about how great he is. Turn to me. I'm the only one that can save you. Now he's going to tell him what this is all going to mean. And that's why I think this is this is the great section of it. But anyway, how you look at it, they're all great because it's all speaking about God. This is, this is the end of what God will do. It will be the chance for people to dwell with God. And not dwell with God because he comes down to them, but dwell with God because he brings them up to himself. And that's what, the, that's what the middle section is about, how God will work to bring men up to himself. Now, that brings us to this thought concerning the servant of God. What is the servant of God? And in the book of Isaiah, there's actually three different ways the servant of God is considered. It goes back to the calling of the nation of Israel. The servant of God is, first of all, in the book of Isaiah, is the nation of Israel. Israel, my servant. There was a very real sense of that because you remember when they came out of Egypt, they were taken out there. They go to a place called Mount Sinai and they receive a law. But before they receive the rules of the program, they're told who they are. All right. Even in the Old Testament, law is not the foundation of it. Grace is the foundation of it. Faith is the foundation of it. They're to be certain things because they are something. And what they are is a chosen race. He said, I'm going to make you into a royal priesthood. You're going to be a people that belongs to me. All right. That was their calling. And they were chosen for that purpose so that God could carry out an action on this earth. And the action he wanted to carry out on this earth was to make his name known. He wants the entire world to know who he is, and respond to that in faith. In order to get that message across, he has to have a servant, and the servant is Israel. And so in the first place, that is the servant of God. That has to be very heartbreaking to all of you who have read through the Old Testament. Because from that point, it seems forward, it's just one failure after another. As a nation, they seldom got on track. Okay, during the time of David, yeah. Or Joshua, we could say. Joshua, when they went in, okay, for a little while. But as soon as they got in, settled down, psh, they're gone. with it. It's gone. Then we have the story of the judges. Terrible period. David becomes king, leads them back up again. But even when David's time, there's some real problems. But after David, it goes back downhill again. You have men like Hezekiah and others who came and led them in revival. But... It isn't what you want it to be. Imagine what that would mean to the people who were hearing Isaiah say this and they think about their own nation, the high calling that we've had to make God known and they take a look around them and they're sacrificing their children. They're going to seances and they're bowing down in front of sticks and stones that they've put up and called God when they had the true and living God. That would be very heartbreaking to the people who really knew their God. That's the first first dimension. And because Israel failed so completely, there is a second expression with regards to the will of the servant of the Lord. In a second sense, the servant of the Lord is the faithful people in the nation 
who continued to follow God despite the general condition of the nation. And almost all the time in the Old Testament, there were those people who were not going to bow. They weren't going to be, they weren't going to fall for all this. They may have been influenced to a degree, but they were going to serve God no matter what anybody else did. Sometimes they're very hidden. Remember the story of Elijah at one point when Elijah thinks he's the only one that's in that condition. He says, listen, there are five or there are 7,000 men out there in your country who have not done it. You don't know them. They're not making a big, big shebang about the whole thing, but they haven't bowed the knee to Baal. They're always in there. And that would have been the kind of way that the people who heard this the first time might have understood themselves to be those people who, despite what Manasseh was doing, despite the fact that everybody was caught up in this free-for-all of sin and debauchery, which did take place, But as the servant of the Lord, they're still hamstrung. They're still without hope. What what can we do? What can we do? We can stand here and testify, but when we testify, he deals with us. And he did deal with Manasseh, dealt with a lot of people who opposed him. Here's a, a king of the nation, of the people of God, and he's dealing with the people who won't follow. And that sense of hopelessness could come in. And indeed, it is a kind of a sense of hopelessness, and it's a thought that's all the way through these last chapters of the book of Isaiah, and it's this, that there's nobody here, none of us, no matter how far we've come with God, who can help the cause. The only way that the promises of the first nine chapters are going to be fulfilled is if God himself steps in and takes over the program, and does it himself. That's why at one point in the the third section, he says this, and I looked, and I was astonished. This is God speaking, that there's no one to help. And so I put on my armor, and I went out and did it myself. And that I'm going to do it myself is a lot of the, the, the thrust of this book, that I've got to do it because there isn't a human being alive that has the capacity to do the two things that the other human beings around them really need. One, take care of the guilt of their sin. Nobody can do that for anybody else. But secondly, nobody can infuse life into anybody. Nobody can put real life into another person. And so I'm going to do it myself, and that's where the servant of the Lord comes in. Now, the servant of the Lord is not introduced in this section. He just becomes the emphasis. We've already considered earlier the servant of the Lord. He was the one in the first section, which the Jehovah refers to, who's going to come, who won't break the bruised reed and who won't quench the smoking flax. That's the first song of the servant in in this section. But when we come to chapter 49 and we start into the section, immediately he begins a series of three songs of the servant. Right? Now let's let's survey the what's happening in this book. What's what's happening in this section? In a sense, it's divided into two parts. Right? You're following that there's three parts here down there. This is in two parts. And if you have a chance to read through it, again it doesn't take a long time to read this. These actually are very short chapters. You can read it in twenty minutes easily. Right? But it starts off with this the servant who's going to come to deliver. Did I, I forgot. Yeah, I did. Okay. 
the servant who's going to come to deliver. That's up to chapter 53. He talks about his greatness, but in, in chapter 53, he says what he's really going to do. And what is the servant going to do when he comes? He's going to bear the sins of many. He's going to die. Now, I want you to also note, we'll go over this in detail later on, but not only is he going to die, but he's going to be resurrected. It's in that chapter because as he's going to die, he's going to be appointed here, and the next thing that happens, he's appointed a place with a great. So the same one who dies is going to be a great one, but he's going to have to die. All those servant songs come to this climax in the center of the, of the entire poem. The, the key point in this section is the point at which the servant dies on behalf of the people of God. All right, now that's, that's where it's going. After that, there is a, a change. Because the question comes, if God has done this, what do I need to do? What do I need to do in light of what God has done? What do I need to do about that? And that's where he starts with that, if you thirst, then come and drink from the waters. If you are hungry, come and, and buy food without, without money. He's also going to say the, the truth. That what it's going to demand is that what? The wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man his thoughts. And they're going to have to turn to the Lord. They're going to have to exercise faith. So in essence, he's going to say this, that they're going to have to humble themselves. That's what has to take place. A humbling of the heart. And that humbling is two sides. It's the, it's the humbling of faith, but it has two sides to it. It's the humbling that says, I'll let go of the things that I love that are opposed to God. I'll let go of them. There's no, there's no merit in doing that. <laughs> it's just that you've got to let go. You've got to say, okay, if you're going to save me, we're going to, you're going to have to do the saving work. Then the other side is this, that you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust. It is, it's, but both of them are acts of humiliation, that I'm wrong and I need to let go, that you're right and you are able to save, and I'm going to come and trust you. Now, what will happen they do that and this is important again let's go back to that application what does that mean to the people who first heard it you see one of the things you can do is you can say because this is a difficult time i should put it off everybody is here it's a bad time god isn't working but here's the fact god's always working remember that when he speaks he's speaking to you when you read this that's him speaking to you he's always crying out it's always time to turn to the Lord. That's why although it's, he's thinking about the, the time of the gospel being preached throughout the earth when he says, turn unto me all the ends of the earth and be saved, he's also saying to the people of that day, turn to me. And just as he's going to say to all of us tonight that we need, you know, I'm the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, he's going to say that to those people in that particular circumstance. You think everything's falling apart? Well, listen to this. Here's what I want you to do. And this is chapter 57. We went over this first before, but I want to look at it in more detail now. It says, For thus says the high and exalted one. That was the God of the first section. This is what I want to say. After you've seen what I did or what's happened with the servant, and you've heard the issues, here's what I'm going to tell you. This is what I'm going to say. The high and exalted one who lives 
forever. And that lives forever just means he is permanent. Inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I'm different. I'm completely different. I am the holy God. I won't come down to your idolatrous ways of thinking. I am who I said I was. And now I'm speaking to you. In light of everything I've done, I'm speaking to you. And here's what I want you to know. I dwell in a high and holy place. Now you're speaking about the very, the very presence of God. He, he, he relates it as two things. It, it's exalted place. And it is a place which is like where Isaiah, Isaiah was in the early day when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. It was a holy place, a different place, a place of holy atmosphere. And he says, and that's where I live. And that could scare you, couldn't it? How am I going to get into that place? Well, he says this. Here's, here's what I'm going to do. I dwell in that high and holy place. And I dwell there with him who is of a, also of a contrite and lowly spirit. Two important words. Contrite and lowly. They'll come out in their, their full meaning here. Here's what they mean. Who are crushed. That's what the first word means. Those who have been crushed. They're inward men. I think about that in the day those people were in there. It's, it's the idea of being overwhelmed by the situation you're in. You just cannot you can't hold up anymore and it just presses you down and you begin to lose the ability to fight. Those that are crushed. I think you could be crushed for a number of reasons. They could be the crushed there because they see what God is calling them to and they see where the nation is and they just are completely overwhelmed by the whole thing. The other side of it could be that they're thinking just about those that are crushed because of their own sin. They realize who I am. They're like Isaiah was at the very beginning. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. You're crushed by that. And he said, I'm going to dwell there, but I'm going to dwell with the ones who are crushed. Then the other word means to have your heart broken. Lowly of heart means to have your heart broken. Broken heart. And he says this, that I'm going to dwell there. I will dwell with the kind of people that let that happen to them, that become crushed and let their hearts be broken. That seems a little strange in language, doesn't it? Now, I don't know if the Lord had this in mind when he said it or not, but he started the first recorded sermon that we have. The first thing that we have, earliest message we have from his lips, says, blessed are the are the ones who have been crushed, those who are hurt, theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. Their hearts are broken. Blessed are those that mourn. They will be what? Comforted. They'll be comforted. How are they going to be comforted? Because he says that when you dwell in his presence, when he brings these people into his presence, when they humble themselves, because the idea here is they're going to humble yourself because of this. When you are crushed, when you are, when you come to the place your heart is actually broken, then what? He's going to revive. That's exactly what the Lord goes on to say. Blessed are the meek, the gentle, those who have come into submission. They're going to inherit the earth. It's one of those great 
mysteries of the Word of God, that the conquerors are going to lose it. They won't be assembled. The great conquerors of mankind that have been been through the ages when they are assembled in heaven will not get the earth. That one day, one day, those people who have humbled themselves and trust Him are going to live in possession of this planet according to the promise of God. One day. I said in, in discussing it, don't, don't think too much. It's Psalm 37 that don't think too much. Very nice. You mean, don't think too much about those that uh, prosper in their way. Don't, don't be irritated with that by the wicked. Because it's only for a little while. And you're gonna, they're, they're going to disappear. And then, and that's where the quote comes from, and then the humble will receive, will inherit the earth. It's theirs. It is yours and mine tonight if we humble ourselves before God. But he says something else is going to happen there. He's going to go in and he's going to revive. He's going to put life into those people. He's going to allow them to live with him and he is going to put life into them. This is a tremendous section of Scripture. Why do we have a chance tonight? Why do I have a possibility? Why do I have hope for the future? It's not because I've been taught by great men, although I have been taught by great men, or I've had great examples in front of me. Hope is in this, that when I was hopeless, when there was nobody who could help me, the Lord stepped in on my behalf. He stepped in on my behalf. He stepped in on your behalf. It's personal. That's what Paul says. He's the God who loved me. He's the Lord who loved me. Loved me personally. That's what Paul says. And gave himself for me. And he stepped in on my behalf. And he did two things for me. And he does two things for anybody who will humble themselves. What's the first? He will take care of the guilt of your sin. Last week we were talking about this, that the worst thing that could happen, the very worst thing that can happen is for a person to die with the guilt of their sin on them. A funeral is either the worst of possible moments or it's the best of possible moments. But there is no middle ground. It's not neutral. As a person, when they die, they are either going to enter into the, to a bliss which is indescribable in the presence of God, away from sin, in the fullness of the blessing of the one from whom everything that is blessed flows, or they're going to be removed from that forever. It's, it's a divide there. But the hope that we have, that we're going to have life, is it begins with that, that forgiveness. But the other side of it is this. He is the one who can give life to the person who comes to him. Who can give life. You may have looked at the word of God and said, you know what, I can't live like that. No, you can't. You can't. That's why blessed are those who mourn. They mourn about what? Did you ever come to that place where you finally mourned, when you realized it is never going to come out of me? There is no turning over of a new leaf which will make me better. There is nothing I can do, not only to pay for the guilt of the past, but to make amends and go straight forward on. And, and even from this day forward, if he just says from this day forward, we'll count it. I'm going to do it again tomorrow. And the next day I've known myself long enough to know it will never change. Here's what the Lord says. Thus says 
the high and lofty one. He's not so high and lofty that he's lost sight of us. He looks to us. He's looked down here. He's made provision. He's inhabited eternity whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy place, but I can dwell, I'll dwell there with those who let themselves understand the truth and are crushed. Understand their own weakness and are brokenhearted. And for that person, I will not only bring him into my presence, indicating that the sin is dealt with, I will put new life into their spirit. They will gain, this is what we start off with, right? Those that wait on the Lord, what happens to them? They gain a brand new strength. They gain something that was never there before. You ever humbled yourself before him? The way up is down. We've heard that many, many times. The way to God is the way down in my heart to accept the fact that there is nothing there. There's no Savior besides Him, and that includes me. And we've come to Him. Have you come to Him and committed yourself into His saving hands, letting go of your sin, letting Him do what He wants to do, and He'll get rid of the sin. He'll take it out. And letting Him deal with the guilt is behind all that. And letting Him bring you into His presence. You were made to live with God. Another part of this, which is so wonderful, that that's why he does this because that's where he made us for. We made He made us to live in his presence, invigorated by who he is. It's a tremendous section. We'll go in, in more detail after, after Christmas. But where are you tonight? That's, that's the big question. Where are we tonight? We come to that place. Have you entrusted your life? into his hands in an act of faith and ask him, the only one who can save, to do it for you. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the price he paid. Thank you for the work he did on that cross. We're coming and asking you to apply it tonight everywhere it needs applied. Well, we thank you for the wide open invitation tonight to come. And we're asking you to enable each person assembled here to avail themselves of that opportunity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.